Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, patients, families, colleagues, and curious folk to the PM&R Report. Our podcast is brought to you by the University of Texas at Houston in conjunction with McGovern Medical School and TIRR Memorial Hermann Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. We bring you another segment of medical explanation, reviews of current literature, expert opinions, debates, and just plain interesting stuffs. Good morning, this is Faye Zhang, a fourth year resident at the Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Residency Program at the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston. Here today with Dr. Suda Tevojula, Dr. Suda Telavajula is an associate professor in the Department of Neurology at McGovern Medical School at the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston. She's the medical director of the Neurological Sleep Medicine Center at Tier Memorial Department. Dr. Telavajula specializes in early screening, diagnosis, and management of sleep apnea in acute ischemic stroke patients to facilitate recovery from stroke. She also specializes in the incorporation of sleep medicine methodology in the development of innovative tools that enhance the recovery of patients with traumatic brain injury, stroke, spinal cord injury, post-traumatic headache, and other neurological conditions. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Telvajula. It was a very informative round, and um, thank you for your excellent presentation with all the videos and explanations. I find it very helpful to comprehend. So let's start here um, from some basics. Could you please give us a brief introduction about the normal sleep-wake cycle? So the normal sleep-wake cycle is in general divided into non-REM sleep and REM sleep and wakefulness, which is what we are familiar with most of the time. Um, what we don't realize very often is that we spend about one-third of our time in this anesthetic, less sensitive to the environment type of uh, schedule. But in fact, there are many active processes that happen during that time. So it's not simply a question of rest and restore. There is also rejuvenate, repair, and many other processes that uh, people typically don't think of as much. Uh, the sleep cycle is usually in an adult uh, about six to eight hours. Anything more than nine hours are probably be considered pathological. We run in circadian rhythms, which means we have a 24-hour day-night cycle that responds to the solar um, you know, spectrum of sunlight. And we take up about, one, about two-thirds of the day in uh, building up what's called a sleep drive, which we then exhaust by going into sleep. A typical sleep cycle comprises of about um, four to six cycles of what we call rapid eye movement or REM sleep. And in between, we have non-REM sleep. Among the non-REM sleep, the deepest is non-REM stage three. As we go from non-REM one, two, and then into three, sleep progresses deeper and deeper. 
Uh, and we actually think that non-REM sleep three is one of the mo- deepest stages of sleep, even more so than REM sleep. So that is the typical human sleep cycle. It changes across ages. There are uh, sex-related differences. There are differences between um, how people respond in different parts of the world, uh, especially as we change latitudes and go from the tropics up to uh, the poles. There are ways in which people react, again, because of the differences in sunlight. Uh, And diverse as it is, it is still an elemental biological need for humans. Great. So what kind of normal behaviors um, can we see in patients with sleep disorders? In sleep disorders, if you're talking about abnormal behaviors, the most common ones that are specific to sleep are called parasomnias, and they are primary sleep-related behaviors. There are a host of other behaviors that are actually considered normal in sleep. For instance, uh, hypnic myoclonus, which all of us have experienced as a slight jerking when we fall asleep or sometimes when we wake up. It is probably more pronounced in patients with anxiety, but it is considered a very uh, normal sleep, uh, sleep-related aspect. Um, there are other behaviors like epilepsies that are not primary sleep behaviors, but are still those that can intrude into sleep very commonly. And then there are others like periodic limb movements in sleep and uh, things like snoring and gasping awake, which are also primary sleep disorders, but are a separate category from parasomnias. So I think that's about the um, conglomerate of what you would normally see as abnormal sleep-related behavior. Mm-hmm. Great to know. Um, I know it's definitely a little bit hard to describe uh, without the video uh, manifestation, but I, I think it's definitely helpful for um, the family members or the caregivers or even um, the night shift staffs in the hospital to um, kind of uh, watch out for. Um, you mentioned a patient with high cervical spinal cord injury and the tetraplegia, and that patient could um, still have some abnormal movements on the arms and night because of the sleep disorder. Could you please um, tell us a little bit more about that interesting case? So this was a young girl uh, who was a victim of an accidental shooting, mistaken identity, and uh, she did not sustain any primary brain injury, but um, she had facial injury and the exit wound was through the upper spinal cord, and so she severed her spinal cord very high. Uh, she came to the hospital as part of acute rehabilitation and her mother noticed that prior to the injury, she had never had this kind of behavior. But during her sleep, she was reaching out for things somewhat purposelessly. And when woken up, she had no behavior of that. Uh, she had no memory of that behavior. And she, you know, when it was brought to our notice, we asked mother to record some videos. Yes, it is very, very helpful to have witness uh, accounts or even better in these days when everyone carries a video recorder in their cell phone to have cell phone recorded uh, videos. Now, not all of them, you know, come out well. Of course, not all of them are accompanied by EEG. But we can also perform what's called ambulatory home video EEG in order to discern these spells better. Although the gold standard is video polysomnography in a lab, many times we realize that what we capture in lab is not native sleep, but contaminated by you know sleep lab effect, having the numbers of wires on the heads and so on. But eventually with uh, this patient came in for video polysomnography and we found that she had these abnormal behaviors arising out of REM sleep. 
Uh, what was surprising is that she also did them occasionally in non-REM sleep. And this entity we call an overlap parasomnia, which can happen in both non-REM and REM sleep. Now, she didn't have any primary brain injury. She was not on an antidepressant when these movements started. Sometimes antidepressants, because they affect the serotonin axis, can often trigger abnormal sleep-related movements, including periodic limb movements. But in her case, that wasn't the underlying reason. So in the absence of anything else, it was a primary sleep disorder. Now, understandably, she had gone through an exceedingly traumatic event. You know, she was a college student with absolutely uh, no other cares. But she, you know, she seemed to be outwardly recovering very well. You know, she had excellent family support. But when we brought our psychiatrist in, he thought that she may have some component of post-traumatic stress disorder. And then in literature, there is now a newly minted entity that people call traumatic uh, REM sleep behavior disorder or, uh, you know, primarily traumatic. That is sort of an overlap between REM behavior disorder, which is an idiopathic parasomnia and trauma, uh, PTSD, which is by definition a replay of uh, memories from the traumatic event. So she had this sort of midway uh, a disorder we think and it's called now it like i said it is officially called trauma related sleep disorder and because it responded to prazosin the relationship with ptsd also seemed to be a more likely um etiology than anything else mm -hmm. yeah it was a very interesting case um now could you please walk us through a little bit more about how you um figure out like different types of sleep disorder so if you look at a sleep disorders as an overall uh, bird's eye view, they're divided into about seven classes. Uh, what I would like to emphasize is, you know, the seven classes of her primary sleep disorders, which means these are things that only happen during sleep and, uh, and are not an extension of other things, for example, medications or uh, daytime anxiety, for instance, or you know, any other daytime illness, for example, diabetes is a very common example that leads to nocturia and, you know, people wake up to use the bathroom multiple times at night. So in that case, it's not just nocturia or a primary sleep disorder. Um, it, these are primary sleep disorders that arise because of the physiology of sleep itself. Uh, among these, the most commonly described are insomnias, which is not just the inability to fall asleep or stay asleep, but also Despite having uh, normal sleep, if you wake up feeling unrefreshed, that still constitutes an insomnia symptom. The second category is what we call sleep-related breathing disorders, or the uh, again a fairly common category that in, that takes into account both obstructive apnea and central apnea, and certain others like obesity, hypoventilation, and other hypoventilation syndromes. Uh, the third category is again, you know, I mean, not necessarily in that order, but uh, we talk about the central hypersomnia syndromes. Now, these are the opposite of the insomnias, where patients are excessively sleepy despite getting adequate hours of norm of refreshing and normal restorative nocturn nocturnal sleep. Uh, usually, these people sleep in excesses of about, you know, 10 to 12 hours a day, and despite which, you know, they um, continue to be sleepy. Very often, unfortunately, these are associated with uh, safety-related accidents, especially during driving, and people don't come into clinics or even um, seek attention until something bad has happened. 
The fourth category is what we call sleep-related movement disorders. For example, restless leg syndrome and periodic limb movements in sleep, which are conditions that are related to each other but are different in that restless leg syndrome is a wake time diagnosis and periodic limb movements are a sleep-related diagnosis. The third kind, the fifth kind is what, is what we call, um, now the, again, the, these are called circadian rhythm disorders, but they could also be called wake sleep rhythm disorders. And this comprises people who have very irregular sleep cycles or, um, you know, they wake up too early and go to bed too early or they wake up late and go to bed too late. These are advanced and delayed sleep phase disorders. Jet lag is also classified under this category. Uh, and then in the last, we have other miscellaneous sleep disorders, which don't really fit into any of these brackets. So that comprises the overall uh, spectrum. Great. Awesome. Um, can you briefly talk about the general management strategies for those patients? Are you talking about just sleep disorders in general or the parasomnias? Yes, the, the sleep disorders in general. Well, uh, I think the most important thing, I guess, about managing these patients is first to identify the problem, you know, and actually recognize it as such. So in primary care, there's still some confusion. And, you know, I think this has to do, as we have known from uh, pretty much many, many studies, that the education regarding sleep is not something that every medical student or resident goes through. In fact, uh, you know, out of all the hours they spend in med school, they probably get about two to three hours on an average as a national average. And the same thing for residents. Many specialties are, in fact, not at all um you know, educated in this entity. And, it, you know, it's partly to do with the system and partly with the way we have constructed our curriculum. But uh, I think the most important thing initially is to recognize. So if a patient comes to you to complain about a particular thing, you know, try to spend a little bit of time understanding if it is in fact an issue or is it just a one-time thing, you know, something that needs to be paid attention to. Um, many of them are well treated. Many of them are easily treatable with you know, um, either medications or devices, depending on what the problem is. Uh, typically, we divide these patients among those that just can't sleep at all, in which case it's an insomnia, or those that don't stay asleep. And in that case, what wakes them up from sleep is the next question. I mean, are you snoring? Are you gasping? Do you wake up short of breath? Do you kick out your legs at night? Do you shout or scream? And, you know, the causes of nocturnal sleep disruption. And in the third case, these are people that will tell you that I'm screaming and shouting at night or I, you know, I kicked out and I feel like I'm running a marathon all night. And in that case, what are the abnormal behaviors you, uh, you know, you reflect next? In most cases, if not known, you know, an idea for referral to a sleep medicine specialist is perfectly, um, you know, legitimate. If you go ahead and order a sleep study, not necessarily understand that not necessarily all sleep disorders actually require a sleep study. For instance, patients with insomnia typically don't require one unless they're having uh, trouble because they wake up from sleep often and then you have to decide why they're waking up from sleep. And then most patients with insomnia are usually uh, diagnosed through a clinical interview, through sleep logs and diaries if they maintain these, and then are sent to a combination of either pharmacotherapy and counseling or one or the other in uh, in isolation. When it comes to things like uh, excessive daytime sleepiness, a sleep study is very often helpful. In these patients, you know, the consideration is whether uh, you need a home 
sleep study or an attended in-lab sleep study. Again, in a day of cost effectiveness and, um, you know, maintaining patients' affordability to healthcare, home sleep tests are a good tool to verify a very strong suspicion of sleep apnea in otherwise medically uncomplicated patients. They have a very narrow indication as such, but for since sleep apnea is so common, many patients actually can do with just a home sleep study and then an automated CPAP machine, which in that, their case doesn't even require a titration. But medically complex patients, such as those in neurorehabilitation that we come across, those that don't necessarily have a very strong indication of sleep apnea, and in fact, we are looking for some other kind of sleep disorder, will more than likely need an attended in-lab sleep study. If it's a particular neuromuscular disorder or indication you're looking for, then they may need additional channels. So a heads up on the order saying this is a particular disorder I'm looking for would also be helpful, especially if you're looking for something like seizures, in which case we may do more extensive study. Once you've decided and you figure out what kind of problem this is, very often if it's if it's an insomnia, you can start pharmacotherapy on your own. Um, the usual expectation from a patient is that you know, they should understand that pharmacotherapy is only used as a temporary measure rather than something they will continue on lifelong. Many, many of these patients will benefit from counseling, which is a combination of cognitive and behavioral therapy called CBT. We provide it at our facility. There are very few across the city that do it. And, you know, there's always a question of how we gain access to these facilities. Now, because of expanding telemedicine, more and more patients are able to access these instead of actually having to come down to a center. So in some ways, I believe we have progressed. There are also options available for online cognitive and behavioral therapy. CBT consists of two branches. One is cognitive therapy, where there is restructuring of thoughts about what sleep is and, you know, eliminating the fear of not falling asleep and behavioral therapy, like good sleep hygiene, which is not necessarily something you read off the internet, but a little more personalized. When it comes to sleep apnea, it requires a little more intervention and probably a little more specialty uh, directed intervention like CPAP machines. Uh, CPAP machines are simply pressurized air, so they come with very little side effects and they're almost universally applicable. There will still be, however, some people that cannot tolerate CPAP and usually these are people with impaired cognition like some of ours. In which case, there are non-CPAP therapies that are used as second line, for instance, surgery or neurostimulation. Again, a sleep medicine specialist referral is probably indicated in, for, the, uh, for this population. When it comes to parasomnias, those get a little more complex. Usually, parasomnias arise because of underlying uh, sleep deprivation overlaid with other sleep disruptions like um, maybe sleep apnea or limb movements or something else. So in that case, addressing the underlying sleep disruption is really quite important because if you don't take out those two, no matter what medications you put on the patient, they will not respond. So understanding what's going on with them and then if necessary, treating them with high-dose over-the-counter melatonin, if it's REM sleep behavior disorder, or clonazepam, and sometimes very rarely other medications like um, nocturnal enuresis, for instance, responds well to imipramine. So uh, in that case, you might have to make a logical choice about what medication you use. The circadian rhythm disorders are treated with a combination, again, of counseling and of exposure to blue light and um, uh, you know, nighttime melatonin. It depends really on the severity of the disorder. And as far as the restless leg syndrome and periodic limb movements, 
in them you typically want to gain an idea of how disruptive both of them are some cases restless legs may only be an occasional problem once every few days and in those patients maybe treatment is not indicated and you know maybe they consume less caffeine maybe they do other non pharmacological things to make it better on the other hand if a patient has very disruptive periodic limb movements or for that matter very troublesome restless legs then in that case they are treated a uh, treatment uh, usually consists first of checking an iron and a ferritin panel if ferritin is anything less than 50 nanogram per ml then we treat them with um, oral oral supplementation or iv supplementation depending on how low it is or whether they have other underlying conditions and the, it's usually a, um, a combination initially of iron supplementation along with gabapentin or pregabalin what we call the alpha 2 delta ligands uh we typically don't start with dopaminergic therapy because these medications are associated with augmentation so symptoms can get progressively worse over time but if needed then uh, gabapentin and pregabalin may be replaced with trimethoxol naproxen or rotavirtine patch so that's sort of the overview of uh, how you treat disorders but it really depends on what kind of sleep disorder it is so first identification is really the key great information thank you so much Um I'm wondering is there any special considerations in brain injury patients? Well, in general this is a tough group of patients to treat. Not for uh you know not as far as having varieties of sleep disorders but uh, mainly in their capacity to cooperate with therapy as in many cases. Um we do have certain things that we do differently for these patients uh again you know you, we are very careful in first making sure that we understand the issue how uh how troublesome is it to both the patient and the family very often when sleep disorders take over it gets very hard for family and caregivers who have to care for these patients now not just during the day but also at night time so helping that actually makes a big difference for both the family and the patient themselves um very often pharmacotherapy is useful for patients with insomnia in these patients cbt may or may not play a huge role because again because of the inability to cooperate mm-hmm. on the other hand patients with uh, sleep apnea or other kinds of disorders may actually be able to cooperate with some forms of non invasive ventilation we have to take some special measures for patients that have asymmetric faces or facial dysmorphisms because of surgery uh from their head trauma and things like that in terms of mask and mask fitting and if uh, cpap doesn't work for these patients we have to be prepared depending on the severity to look for non cpap options like neurostimulation or surgery so yes i mean there are certain special considerations for these patients we have to understand that they even in general especially for sleep disorder breathing tolerance to cpap does not come easily it takes a lot of commitment and effort on part of the patient and when the patient cannot do these things then the ball is in our court to do the best we can mm-hmm. yes there, there's definitely a lot of um yeah uh, more thoughts that we need to take into consideration among those um kind of patients um as their cognitive or um arousal maybe impaired um with the medication as well uh thank you for those information i have a, another question regarding melatonin So I was told that higher doses of melatonin may um sensitize the receptors and so 
Um, it's not necessary to use melatonin higher than nine milligram. Uh, what is your um, opinion on that? The thing about melatonin is that it, the data um, and you know literature is just very haphazard, very mm -hmm. uh, scant. It is less studied in children than it is in adults. And um, the issue is that it's very heterogeneous in terms of the number of uh, medications and formulations and dosages used and populations of patients used. So that's why making any cogent uh, recommendations regarding melatonin is actually quite difficult. But uh, for the most part in clinical practice, we recognize that melatonin has basically two effects. Number one, what we call a circadian rhythm uh you know, modulating effect or physiological effect. And the second one is a pharmacological effect at low doses. And this is some, probably of the equivalent of 0 0.25 or 0 0.5 milligrams. It uh, It is secreted in that sort of equivalent dose in the body. And it changes our rhythm to nocturnal rhythm versus daytime rhythm and things like that. So that's what we all physiologically have. At higher doses, at around 3 to 5 milligrams, it is a mild, mild sedative. So at this point, it is not just doing circadian rhythm balancing. It's also doing, um, you know, a soporific effect. So anything higher than that is traditionally not very useful to keep patients asleep. So at that point, it's probably not doing much. We use doses of 9 to 12 and sometimes even 15 milligrams, and we consider those high doses for patients with REM sleep behavior disorder and other parasomnias in order to minimize it. And at that point, we call that a parasomnia dose. I mean, it's no longer being used for sedation. As far as the question of tolerance and developing, uh, uh, you know, less and less response as time goes by, melatonin typically doesn't have a tolerance effect, so much so that because it's so mild, patients don't notice effects. So um, after 9 to 10 milligrams, one of the big problems is that it tends to stay in the body and confuse the body more than anything else because typically in a normal human being, melatonin should go up at around 7, 8 p.m., 9 p.m., depending on when their chronotype is, and then it should go down later in the night. But when you pump the body with melatonin, melatonin just stays in the system and then the body doesn't know what's going on. I mean, the, the normal peak and curve and nadir are not achieved. So that is really some of the, those are some of the concerns that surround melatonin usage. Again, most of this data has to be taken, uh, you know, in perspective because we, the doses used for studies are, are just way across the board and what you get in the grocery store, again, because it's a supplement and it's not an FDA regulated medication, there's a lot of variation. Awesome. This is very helpful. Um, so I believe we have a very substantial overview of the sleep disorder, and there are definitely a lot more for us to um, read and learn. Do you have any recommendations on um, some good studying materials or resources? The one that I traditionally recommend for patients that deal with uh, neurological, for physicians, I'm sorry, the, or healthcare providers that deal with neurological patients is the American Academy of Neurology publication, The Continuum. And they publish volumes on different subspecialties in neurology every quarter. And one of those is sleep medicine, and I believe they published one recently. That is an excellent overview of all sleep disorders, a very concise and up-to-date um, database. It's a, you know, it's about 100, 120 pages. It's not that very, it's not that big. It makes for very good reading. Oh, great. Um, 
All right. Thank you again for joining us on the podcast. I deeply appreciate your time and effort in our education. Um, we would be looking forward to future opportunities to collaborate with you.、Um, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. I would like to make it clear that we make every effort to broadcast correct information. We will double-check facts and assertions, but we do ask our listeners to realize that medicine is a constantly changing science and an art. One physician may have an entirely different way of doing things from another, and any views expressed are solely those of the person expressing them. We welcome any comments, suggestions, and correction of errors. We do not accept any money, services, or sponsorship otherwise from pharmaceutical, supplement, or device companies. By listening to this podcast or reading this blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you may be treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall McGovern Medical School, any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of UT Health, be held responsible for damages arising from use of this podcast or blog. We are here to stimulate the dialogue. We are here to get the wheels spinning. We are here to spark new questions in the field of medicine. Thank you for listening.